What's going on, everybody? This is Grayson Singleton, the host of the Gray Area Podcast. Coming up on today's show after a big NFL Week 15, Aaron Rodgers, the Denver Broncos, and COVID around the NFL as we sum up this week. As well as we'll also talk about the climate crisis in the United States of America. Finally, we'll finish the show with my top five Coach of the Year candidates through Week 15. Take a listen, everybody. I was having an argument, or, well, not not an argument, a debate, about the NFL MVP. And this was last Sunday. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers were coming off a big win over the Indianapolis Colts. Tom Brady was spectacular. And Landon Buffet, who I've, do, who I've done podcasts, radio shows, numerous amounts of media work with, really good friend of mine. Obviously, he's a big Brady fan, and he presented the argument that Tom Brady was the MVP. And I combated that with saying Brady was second to Aaron Rodgers. And, well, that didn't go well, over well with him. And this was actually in our fantasy football group chat, a um, a league that we have over at Oklahoma State. And I was the only one that put Aaron Rodgers ahead of Tom Brady. One of Stephen A. Smith's favorite things to say, granted it's about the Dallas Cowboys, but it's still apropos here, just wait, just wait. Lo and behold, I am watching a movie with my sisters last night, Sunday night, as I record this on a Monday afternoon, and Landon, of all people, texts me and says, Brady is no MVP. After he failed to put up a single point against the New Orleans Saints, he says it is Rodgers and Jonathan Taylor now. And to that I say, duh. You know... Last week, I, I said that I don't like to front and act like I hate to say I told you so, when really and truly, I love saying I told you so. There have been two people this season that I've lobbied to be the MVP. The first one was Lamar Jackson at the early point in the season. You know, all his running backs were injured, half his defense was injured, got an offensive lineman injured, had no receivers to start the year, and lo and behold... The Baltimore Ravens were just humming along as if nothing happened because of Lamar Jackson. He was the fifth best quarterback in fantasy football at the time. He had an impressive completion percentage. He was leading by far all quarterbacks in rushing yards. He was the leading rusher on his team. He accounted for 80% of his offense. So to me, that was an MVP. And I think Lamar Jackson could have been an MVP if the season ended there. But his MVP campaign kind of fizzled out, sort of like what Russell Wilson does every year. You know, he has the first four or five games where, like, Russell Wilson's the MVP. Come week 15, we're not even mentioning his name. Now, a lot of other things have plagued Lamar Jackson. Injuries, I think he had a sickness. He's had a little bit of not-so-favorable um, luck. The second time we had an MVP discussion, I said it was Aaron Rodgers. And I think that's where we sit today. Right now... Aaron Rodgers is the leading candidate for the MVP. Because what Aaron Rodgers has done, leading the Green Bay Packers to now their third consecutive NFC North division title, he has done this with a revolving door of everything. 
Think about it. At some point in the season, he did not have Aaron Jones, who had an MCL uh, sprain. I think he missed two weeks. His offensive line has been a merry-go-round. David Bakhtiari hasn't been there. Billy Turner has moved to a different spot. You've had Dennis Kelly in there. Their center, Patrick Lindsay, hasn't been there at times. They Their offensive line, Ellen Jenkins, I believe, is out for the year now. Their offensive line has not been there. And offensive line is, of all the units on football, you need consistency and availability to have the cohesion necessary to function. So he's had to deal with that. He had a game where Devontae Adams was out. His defense, which has been pretty good, a little bit better than we expected. They've, they're they missing guys. You know, you've got Jair Alexander that might be coming back at the end of the year. Um, Zadarius Smith has been out at times. Preston Smith has been out for, for times. And then he's had to overcome a less than stellar front office that has gotten better. I will give them credit for that. They have gotten better as time has gone on in the saga of Aaron Rodgers' grievances with the team. They have gotten better. And I think it's to a point now with the front office where Aaron Rodgers is probably considering staying in Green Bay. At least for the remainder of his contract. But last night proved something to me about why Aaron Rodgers most definitely is the MVP over Tom Brady. Now, if you want to say Jonathan Taylor is the MVP over Aaron Rodgers, I am here for that discussion. To me right now, it would still be Aaron Rodgers, but there's no way Aaron Rodgers is surpassed in the MVP by Tom Brady. Tom Brady last night, going up against the New Orleans Saints. New Orleans Saints is a pretty good defensive team. Don't get me wrong. In the beginning part of the game, Brady lost Mike Evans, his number one receiver. Brady lost Chris Godwin, his number two receiver. Leonard Fournette had a hamstring injury, I believe. His running back. And he could not even muster up a point. And remember, you're you're probably saying, well, their defense is good. Yes, the New Orleans Saints defense is a very good defense, particularly on the front four. However, the New Orleans Saints are quarterbacked by a backup running back, backup tight end, backup kick returner, backup everything that somehow happens to play quarterback in Taysom Hill. And when you have that sort of situation and an offense that cannot really move the ball down the field and obviously cannot score points, the final score in that game was 9 to nothing. When you have a team that cannot stay on the field, that is deleterious to your defense, regardless of how good the defense is. So the fact that Brady couldn't even move the ball down the field is a problem. Take that back. Let's let's go back a few weeks ago when the Green Bay Packers played the Arizona Cardinals, who at the time were the unanimous best team in football. Because of COVID protocols, Devontae Adams is out, the number one receiver. Marquez Valdez-Scanling is out. He had a hamstring injury. He's the number two receiver. The number three receiver, Alan Lazard, is out against a very good, a very good defense against Kyler Murray and, uh, and DeAndre Hopkins. They were the best team in football. I believe they were still undefeated at the time. They were 7-0. And the Packers won 24-21. Aaron Rodgers led them to a win in which the leading receiver that was not a running back was a guy named Juwan Winfrey. He was throwing to Juwan Winfrey and Jacob DeGuara 
and Robert Tunyon, who tore his ACL in the middle of that game. And no matter the circumstance, no matter who was playing, he also had a less-than-healthy Aaron Jones, who was coming back early from that MCL sprain that I mentioned earlier. They got it done. And when Tom Brady lost all semblance of his stacked offensive lineup, he couldn't muster up a single scoring drive. And to me, that is value. And how I determine, you know, the most valuable player is how much better is your team, or not, how does your team perform when you are the constant and everything else around you is revolving? And it's very clear that if you go by that metric, Aaron Rodgers has proven time and time again this season. Lamar Jackson has proven time and time again this season, especially early in the season, that no matter who went down, their team was still going to win games. And now the Green Bay Packers are the top seed in the NFC. They have won a third straight division title. And they are making real the nightmare that everybody in that conference has that the NFC playoffs and the road to Super Bowl 56 is going to go through the frigid, snow, snowy, stormy, windy Lambeau Field. And that is all thanks to Aaron Rodgers. So today I wake up and Aaron Rodgers is the MVP right now. Obviously things can change over the last over the next four weeks. Maybe it will, but we have to see how Tom Brady can perform with his guys out because we've already seen that Aaron Rodgers can do that. The big news over the NFL weekend was the surge in coronavirus cases within the league. Many teams, the Rams, the Browns, the football team, Washington, were hit extremely, extremely hard by COVID. And I'm recording this on a Monday, and the reason I say that is because third-string quarterback Nick Mullins is going to start for the Cleveland Browns in the Monday doubleheader against the Raiders. Baker Mayfield, Case Keenum did not clear COVID protocols, which brings me to basically the topic of this back half of the first segment. You know, it it's weird to me how rational human beings... And look, you don't have to be the most intellectually gifted human being. But we all are rational human beings. We are all rational. We are all logical. That's part of, that's part of the essence of being a human being. How does the concept of adapting to changing information not seem like commonplace? Because the NFL changed its COVID protocols. You know, Politicians and scientists have changed their stances on COVID many, many times when new information comes out and people will say that, oh, well, they're just adjusting because of money or because of people who are out. No, no. Um, Good governing, good management in my business, good reporting and good opining is... When the facts change, your opinion changes. When the facts change, your course of action changes. So the NFL is dealing with a surge in COVID. This, that is also simultaneously happening to the surge 
in COVID cases um, across the country and across the world due to the advent of the new Omicron uh, variant. Here's what we know about the Omicron variant. The Omicron variant is more is um more easily transmitted and is by by many by by exponentially it is less deadly than either of the other two strains of the coronavirus that we have we have dealt with so far. So is so it's easily transmitted but nobody's getting sick really. As a matter of fact, vaccinated people who contract it don't even know they have it at all. So the NFL has, in light of all this, changed their COVID protocols. Now, their old COVID pro- protocols meant that for a vaccinated player, you had to to test out of the protocols, you had to provide two negative tests separated by 24 hours. New information has come out and has been brought to the NFL and to Alan Sills, who is the NFL's health and safety expert, A person with a 35 or more cycle threshold, or basically in layman's terms, I think this is synonymous with uh, viral load in their body. So if it's 35 or higher, that that value, that person is usually not contagious. Based on that knowledge, this is the NFL's new COVID protocols for vaccinated players. Now, 95% of the NFL is vaccinated. There are three ways that a vaccinated player can test out of the protocols. You have two PCR negative tests, or you have two PCR tests that show a CT value, cycle threshold, of 35 or more, meaning you're probably not contagious. So even if you're still positive, but you have a a CT value of 35 or more, you can still test out of the protocols. The second way you can test out of the protocols is one PCR test, either negative or positive with a 35 or more cycle threshold, and a rapid test, a MESA test, that is negative. Or, the last step, or the last method you can test out of the protocols, is two negative MESA tests. And, if you're not applauding the NFL for this, to me, you are not acting in the best interest of good management and good governing. Did we know about the cycle threshold value a while ago? Maybe maybe more health experts knew about this, but this was not disseminated to the public. But now that they know that if you have a cycle threshold of 35 or more, and you're vaccinated, which means you're probably not even going to feel any effects from the Omicron virus, or variant, excuse me, why should we be keeping people out of NFL games, out of practice, out of games, when we also know and have ex- substantial data that the coronavirus is not transmitted with on-field play. Which, I mean, should be common sense. Like, yeah, I, you can understand because, you know, you're moving around and whatnot, and you're not breathing on the same person for, you know, I guess they say close contact is within six feet for 15 minutes plus. I think it's reasonable to say, to believe that on-field transmission doesn't particularly happen. But, these new protocols, yes, they benefit the NFL's business. But, you know, you have less strain on players because your rosters will be more full. And, 
to us as fans, we get an example of new information and making good decisions off of it. And really what I'm saying here is this. It is completely foolish to not adapt to changing information. Now, we don't know what the Omicron variant does to unvaccinated players, and the NFL's um, protocols for unvaccinated players remains pretty much the same, if not a little bit more increased. And all NFL teams, by the way, all 32, regardless of they are their um, COVID situation, they're all under intensive protocols until the end of this week. So basically until through the holiday. And... This is a good this is a good thing. This is really this is really a good thing because it shows that the NFL is not engaging in hyperbole when it comes to COVID. And yeah, I I know we're all through with COVID and you know all that. It's still it's still somewhere a problem, you know. But it shows that the NFL, who's standing with the American society, is of the utmost um prestige. It shows that they're trying to make an example and say, new information, new protocols, and at the very least when you do this, you're not looking stupid. You're not looking tyrannical. Like what Baker called, or not Baker, um, Aaron Rodgers called the uh, NFL protocols. Draconian is the word he used. You don't look like that. You look like a well-oiled machine. You look like something that is working on sound logic and sound intelligence, and it's a good thing. It is completely foolish to not adapt to changing information and change your opinion and change your course of action. So one of the big things in our world today, of course, is the climate crisis. And Sunday, as I was catching up on some reading, um, I ran across this headline that Democrat Senator from West Virginia, Joe Manchin, has decided to switch sides of the aisle and vote against the Biden administration's Build Back Better proposed legislation. Now, Build Back Better obviously has taken the form of many things, infrastructure, um, economic policy, and this one what we're going to talk about today is its combatants of the climate change crisis in the United States, and not really just in the United States, but in the world in general. So if you still don't believe in climate change, let me introduce you to what happened over the course of the last 10 days. Record number of tornadoes basically destroyed, in record numbers as well, the South and the Midwest. You've had record-breaking hurricanes, record-breaking wildfires. Last year, in Texas and Oklahoma, you had the winter storms that destroyed everything, um, including including Texas's power grid, and Oklahoma's wasn't much better either. You've had... The, the scale of tornadoes that exi- that happened, you know, a few years ago in the Midwest that were just as, if not more, destructive. And you had what we talked about over the summer was record-breaking heat temperatures in the Northwest, up the Pacific and into Canada. Ladies and gentlemen, climate change is a real thing, and that is one of the things that I, that I just am not up for debate about. Um, I debate a lot of things that go on in this world. Um... I do not question people's intelligence when they present a different viewpoint than me on a lot of things that happen in this world. If you are still in the mindset of denying that climate change is a real thing, then we need to have a serious, serious conversation. 
about whether you are interested in being a productive human being in this world. That is the nicest way I can put that. Because climate change and the effects of it are real before our very eyes. There's no, uh, there's no better way the Earth can tell us, y'all better get your act together. So anyway, Joe Manchin has decided to vote against the Build Back Better proposed legislation. This legislation was a $555 billion package that would be aimed at lowering greenhouse gas emissions and would basically serve as the largest investment in clean energy in the United States history. This would take place in the form of tax credits, grants, and other policies. And look, um, I have not been the biggest... I haven't been the biggest critic, but I have not been the biggest applauder of the Biden administration's performance thus far. Now, let me address that before I go on. This will only take a minute. This will only take a few seconds. Look, the Biden administration has been rocky for its first year. We have to we have to remember this has only been a year. We asked the administration to come in in the most tumultuous time in the United States history. At least in the last 100 plus years. There, no presidential transition has been made during a pandemic, during a near civil war, and during a time where the former president, the incumbent, was trying to undermine the election and was threatening to refuse to leave. So to expect that a new administration would come in and do a fabulous job is completely irrational and unrealistic. Now, here is where the Biden administration, and I don't think this is really a secret anymore that me from Texas, I did vote for Joe Biden. Here's what drew me to the Biden administration, a, a potential of a Biden administration, was climate change. Believe it or not, I obviously liked, you know, there, there were things that I liked that he said, you know, possibility of, you know, getting rid of student debt. Do I think that will ever happen? No. No. Um more inclusivity was a big thing for me but the Biden administration one of the promises that it has kept to this day is that Biden and his constituents have been hell-bent on getting some form of climate crisis combatancy passed Biden has a goal of cutting America's emissions in half by 2030 and um, which is compared to numbers from 2005. And with Joe Manchin switching from voting with his party to voting with Republicans against this, here's what's going to happen here. Without reduction at this proposed speed, the United States, which has entered back into the, parent, into the Paris Climate Agreement, Will, fall, will likely fall short of any targets under the 2015 agreement that it committed to doing. And climate measures, while they can still be passed, will not be signed into law and will likely be and could likely and very easily be overturned by a future administration. Now, here's the danger in that. None of us right now expect Joe Biden to be reelected in 2024. I mean, obviously, we're still wondering if Joe Biden will even run for re-election in 2024. Does that mean that somebody of the Republican Party can be, will be president? Possibly. 
Here's the thing about Republicans and climate change. They do not care about it. So getting this signed into law was of the utmost gravity. Part of this, part of this package was to create a, civ- a civilian climate corps, which would be hiring 300,000 young people to restore forestation and to restore wetlands, and would also, when it would also institute tax credits to cut the installation of solar panels on residential roofing by 30%. Basically, this would also this was also offer jobs in the renewable energy industry and would ban offshore drilling and basically just make this a better climate and not really make it a better climate because we can't reverse what we've done but at least give the earth more time. And he, look, here's, and I'll, I'll get to the gravity of the situation at, at the end of this, because this isn't going to last too long. Here's the thing that I found out, and all of this is summarized in a piece by the Washington Post, Anna Phillips, that was written, I believe, on Saturday. Here, Joe Manchin is a very interesting character in all of this. Because while Joe Manchin is a Democrat, and by virtue of affiliation, you would think that climate change would be something he has at least some sort of effort in trying to combat. And Joe Manchin here is not completely against climate change and the climate and combating the climate crisis. Joe Manchin is has said, in fairness, and because I and because I try to be a fair opinion uh, a piner and commentator, I will say this: Joe Manchin is open to renegotiating this, but he did not like this particular form of it because he basically just to, to plagiarize uh paraphrase excuse me paraphrase what he said <laughs> um he basically said he didn't like taking this big of a swing with this sort of monumental legislation of course this is the this is climate change we're too far gone to reverse it you got to take a big swing in my opinion not only but this swing would also create like i just mentioned three hundred thousand jobs as well as more jobs in the renewable energy. Joe Manchin here is an interesting character because he earns millions of dollars, according to the Washington Post, earns millions of dollars from his family's waste coal business. A big greenhouse gas (laughs) emitter. He has also in the past, including earlier this year, helped kill another piece of climate proposal, and he has continued to assist the oil and gas industry by killing multiple measures that are designed to reduce methane emissions and he has also killed bills to ban offshore drilling. So Manchin has a personal tie to the oil and gas industry as well as the coal industry, which are fantastic uh, industries until you realize they're the industries destroying our economy. I mean, not our economy, our ecosystem. The proposed legislation, the proposed Build Back Better uh, legislation, has also um, given more tax cuts and grants to electric car companies as well. Try, again, trying to move the world, and at least at least this country, to more sustainable, renewable, cleaner energy. Obviously, electric cars do not give off the exhaust and do not put the same amount of carbon monoxide into the atmosphere. So to me, this sort of legislation was incredibly exponentially important. Not only would it assist the economy, 
Not only would it put more people into work, but you could do something that is quantitatively admirable. By 2030, cutting America's emissions in half? I mean, my goodness. I mean, that you, you, can, you can count that. You can count that and say, that's a good thing. And here's, and here's what I'll say about the Biden presidency. Because a lot of people have said that Biden has also failed at COVID. Joe Biden has taken big swings on issues. Except with the way America's government is set up, if there are enough people opposing you, regardless if they're in the majority or not, if there are enough people opposing you, even what might be a good thing might not get done. To say Joe Biden failed at COVID is very disingenuous because enough people are just not participating in the plan to combat COVID. And if you're going to use this failure to pass the Build Back Better Act, if in fact it does fail to pass, which is looking more and more every day like it will not pass the Senate, to say that he failed is very disingenuous because... He did everything he can. And that's and that's and that basically is a summary of the US presidency. Particularly now in our post truth um polarized era of our country's history and our country's story, is that most of the time, if it's going to take a big swing like this, if it's going to cause people to care about something that we either haven't been able haven't needed to care about, or some people just are not raised to care about or some people who are just blatantly opposed, you can't get it done. And a principle that I always live by is if you see a problem, there are three things you can do. You can ignore it and pretend like it's not a problem. You can see the problem, acknowledge the problem, and do nothing about it. Or you can see the problem, acknowledge the problem, and try to do something. And if you do the third one, try to do something, regardless if it doesn't work, I can always respect that. I will always respect somebody that sees a problem and tries to do something about it, obviously within legal, humane ways. But I will never respect people who either see who either see a problem and try to reason their way to say it's not one, or see a problem and just choose to do nothing about it. So we can say the Biden administration has not been fantastic through its first year. And I can agree with that. But I can also say that when it comes to the coronavirus and when it has come to climate change, Joe Biden's doing something and he's trying to do something. And what's even more dire as I make this a little bit more personal, here's what, this is um from Brian Schatz. He's a senator from from Hawaii. He said, quote, the planet is not going to pause its warming out process while we sort our politics out. We owe it to future generations to figure out what can pass and pass it. But despair is not an option, close quote. Here's the thing. I'm from Texas. We don't see a whole lot of bad weather all the time. We have some tornadoes. We have some storms. Um, we have some wintry weather. We don't see what happened last winter. That, is not, that does not happen often. And one-off, abnormal weather events are happening more and more and more across the country. I don't know where I'm going to be living in three years. I do not know where I'm going to be living in 10 years. But I would rather not have to deal with these abnormalities of weather. 
you know, you think about possibly raising a family somewhere and having, you know, to relocate because of things like this. But what if we can somehow manage the climate crisis enough to where people do not have to deal with these situations at the scale that they do? And it's a good thing. It is a good thing when you are in control. Because you can only control yourself. So do what you can. We are way too far gone to reverse the effects that have caused the climate crisis. But we can manage it and we can and we can try to preserve this earth as long as possible. Because at the scale we're going right now, <laughs> Jesus may not have to come back to signal the end times. Because we might just kill ourselves and the only environment known to be able to house human life. So one of the things that was cool yesterday, um, me being in this south-southern region of the country, is I got to watch the Denver Broncos without having to stream it on my computer. The Denver Broncos actually were on TV in my market, and I watched them play the Cincinnati Bengals. Both teams 7-6, and six, both teams with a win. The Cincinnati Bengals obviously won the game. They moved into the four seed of the AFC playoff. They're now leading the AFC North. The Broncos with a win would have moved to 8-6 and six and would have moved into second in the AFC West and possibly into one of the five to seven seeds, wildcard seeds, in the AFC playoff. However, the Broncos lost and they only scored 10 points. Got a field goal, got a touchdown from their offense, thankfully. Excuse me. I have gone through this entire season trying to think, maybe Teddy Bridgewater can work. Maybe Drew Locke might be a future option. It is not. And really, and it's so depressing to watch the Denver Broncos. Because they have probably a top five receiving core. Jerry Judy is one of the better up-and-coming young receivers. He's taken a little bit longer than guys like Jamar Chase or Justin Jefferson to adapt to the NFL game, but he's getting there, and he's going to be special. Tim Patrick is a very good receiver, very good hands, presents a big option for quarterbacks, can go get the ball at 6'4", and then you have Cortland Sutton, the number one receiver, good deep threat, nice speed, great separation, big target, 6'3". Two good running backs, Javante Williams is a stud, Melvin Gordon is a great back as well to have in a one-two punch. Your offensive line is better. It's not it's not great, but it's middle of the pack, which is serviceable. And you still have a great defense. Now, obviously, next year you're going to get a lot of those guys like Alexander Johnson and Josie Jewell back from injury. They've had a lot of injuries at the inside linebacker position. The Denver Broncos, there are two teams, two, that are in the situation the, the Denver Broncos are in. And they both have pretty identical records. The Broncos now at 7-7, seven and seven, and the other team being the Pittsburgh Steelers at 7-6-1. Here's the situation they have. They have Super Bowl caliber rosters. And maybe the only thing they need is quarterback competency. Now, we say, now you have the Steelers. The Steelers need to fix their offensive line. That's something the Broncos don't have to do. But the Pittsburgh Steelers are a quarterback away from being very competitive. A good top 10 receiving core. I like Chase Claypool and James Washington and Deontay Johnson. And we'll see what they do with Juju Smith-Schuster. But they have a good up-and-coming tight end, Pat Firemuth. Denver has one as well. Denver has two good young tight ends. 
Um, Noah Fan, Albert, Okwebenob. I think I pronounced that correctly. Pittsburgh can get after the passer. Obviously, they have TJ Watt, who I think after looking at numbers, probably is a defensive player of the year. Sorry to Micah Parsons fans. And they have a good secondary, good veteran secondary, and good fast linebackers. And obviously, a young up-and-coming stud at running back in Najee Harris. So the Broncos and the, and the Steelers are in a very enviable position where they just need a quarterback. And the Steelers can probably draft a quarterback because they probably have a longer window of opportunity than the Broncos do, in my opinion. But it's not by much. The Broncos need to go the veteran route. And here's the Broncos' draft capital, because you're not going to improve the Denver Broncos but by so much through the draft anymore. They've improved, they've improved through the draft probably as best as they can unless they just land a generational game-wrecking guy. They have a first-round pick. They have two seconds, two-thirds, a fourth, two-fifths, a sixth, and two-sevenths. That's the Broncos' draft capital for 2022. Who says you can't flip that and get Russell Wilson? Who says you can't flip some of that and get Deshaun Watson? Who says you might not be able to flip some of that and get Matt Ryan? Now, Matt Ryan is owed a lot of on, on, his, uh, on his contract, but the Broncos have cap room. The Broncos can make the numbers work. Maybe you give up an additional second. Maybe you give up a first to try to make the money work with Atlanta. But the Broncos can go the veteran route and get a quarterback that is not Teddy Bridgewater, that is not Drew Locke, and become a Super Bowl contender. Before this season started, with, with their only quarterbacks being Teddy Bridgewater and Drew Locke, I predicted the Broncos to win 10 games. Right now, I'm three off. I, I probably, realistically will end up being about one-off, because I think the Broncos right now are about a 9-8 and team. You're not telling me with Drew, with um, with Deshaun Watson, you're not telling me with Aaron Rodgers, probably not going to happen at this point. You're not telling me with Russell Wilson, news came out last week that Russell Wilson would waive his no-trade clause to go to Denver. You're not telling me with Matt Ryan, the Broncos can't go to the Super Bowl? Remember, the Broncos have beaten solid, solid teams this year. They outscored the Dallas Cowboys. You know, they they put 38 up on Detroit, which, I mean, it's Detroit, but, you know, you still have offensive output. You beat the Chargers this year, scored 24 on them, which has good defense. So the Broncos are beating quality teams with subpar quarterback play. And do you need a change in scheme? Yeah, you probably do. If Vic Fangio is back next year, which all indications point to him being back next year, which I don't know if I love or hate that, probably somewhere in the middle, but, you know, angle toward hate because I'm not really a big fan of Vic Fangio as a head coach, even though I think his the job he's done with his defense is phenomenal, particularly with the rash of injuries that they've had. You need an offensive scheme, schematic change. And I've never liked Pat Shermer. Um, never been really a fan of his schemes. But bring in a more dynamic quarterback 
bring in a more dynamic scheme. The Broncos can score points. They can stop people from scoring points. That's a pretty, pretty good way to make some hay in the AFC West. Because even at 7-7, and the Broncos are two games back of Kansas City. They're only one game out of the wild card. You know, we'll see what happens with Cleveland this week. But with the draft capital they have, two-sevenths, a six, two-fifths, a fourth, two-thirds, two-seconds, and their first-round pick, the Broncos can package some draft capital to bring in a quarterback. Now, I saw Todd McShay's first mock draft, and he has Malik Willis, the quarterback from Liberty, mocked to the Broncos. I would not be opposed to that. But I think if you want to capitalize on this win-now roster that Denver has, you go get a veteran. Go get you a Russell Wilson. If the legal situations the, the legal situations play out favorably, go get you a Deshaun Watson. I think that's your best move if you're Denver. Okay, let's finish out the show with my list today. And my list today is the top five NFL coaching performances this year. These are my top five coach of the year candidates in the NFL. Honorable mention, let's start it off with Mike Tomlin. Um, horrible offensive line, aging quarterback, shenanigans of the wide receiver position, particularly with Chase Claypool, and you've got a defense who has had guys that have been in and out with COVID, with groin injuries. You've missed guys like Fitzpatrick, like Joe Hayden, like TJ Watt. They are one win away from Mike Tomlin, again, never having a losing season. With a pretty tough schedule, and they've beaten teams like the Browns. They've beaten teams like the Ravens. They're, they're holding their own in their division. And they're still on the outside looking in of the playoff picture. But again, with a less than talented roster, they have outshined my expectations. They've outshined a lot of people's expectations. And all they have to do is fix the offensive line. And Mike Tomlin's coaching performance, if, if they had a capable offensive line and a capable quarterback, we might be talking about the Steelers in the Super Bowl conversation. But we're not because of the limitations of the roster, and Mike Tomlin has gotten exponentially more out of this team than this team really should. So that, that's my honorable mention. Here's number five, Matt LaFleur. I think it's time we start giving Matt LaFleur a lot of respect in the coaching ranks. Three years with this team, three NFC North Division titles. They clinched this week, and he has had to construct game plans around a rash of injuries. Aaron Jones has missed time. Devontae Adams has missed time. Lazard. Valdez Scantling, Tunyon's been out for the year. Their offensive line has been musical chairs to say the least. And their defense has, has dropped some guys. But Matt LaFleur, in, in, you know, in, um, in conjunction with Aaron Rodgers, has been able to keep this offense afloat, keep this team afloat. And now 10-3, they might be considered the best team in the NFL right now. And they're going back to the postseason and are inching ever closer to making sure that the NFC playoff picture goes through Lambeau. Number four, Nick Sirianni, probably the most underrated coach in the NFL with the Philadelphia Eagles. The Eagles are 6-7, and seven, much, much, much better than I thought they would be. They were in salary cap hell. They had really no talent. I thought the Eagles were going to win three, maybe four games max, and they are still on the outside looking in in the, NF in the NFC playoff picture. They can still make the playoffs. Colin Cowherd, one of my favorite analysts, thinks the Eagles are going to make the playoffs. The, the biggest thing with his performance is that he came from a scheme in Indianapolis where they love to throw the football. They run, they ran the football, yes, but they love to throw it. 
he started off the season throwing it a lot and then realized this ain't going to work. The Eagles now run the ball more than two-thirds of the time, and they have been better for it. They're using Jalen Hurts' legs. They've been able to run it even when Miles Sanders is out. They've given it to guys like Kenneth Gainwell and Boston Scott and Jordan Howard. Their defense is stopping people. Love the addition of Darius Slay. He's been he's been phenomenal. The the addition of um of Anthony Harris at safety. And their guys are just getting after the quarterback as well. They are no pushover. They're better than when the Cowboys beat them on Monday Night Football earlier. And I think they're go- I think they're going to have some very entertaining games down the stretch. And they could possibly make the playoffs because they have switched their identity. And Nick Sirianni has adapted to changing information about his team. Good on him. He's number four. Number three, Frank Reich in Indianapolis. Indianapolis I didn't think was going to be horrible, but I didn't think they would be good just because I wasn't a believer in Carson Wentz. Well, they've made sure that if if Carson Wentz is good, bad, or ugly, they can still win games. Carson Wentz only threw for 58 yards against the Patriots on Saturday night, and they still and they still won. Why? Because Frank White Frank Reich has said, put the ball behind this offensive line, give it to Jonathan Taylor, and we're gonna play good defense. And guess what? If they need to score points, they can do that too. They're very versatile. They're a very dangerous team in the NFL. Pat McAfee said it best. This is the hottest team in the NFL, the Indianapolis Colts. And, they can, and they're going to scare a lot of people because the way they play football, run the ball, stop the run, and create turnovers on the back end is, is sustainable for playoff football in January and into February when the weather gets bad. So the, Eagles, so the Colts excuse me, can, win the ga- can win games at home at Lucas Oil, but they can also win games on the road. And Carson Wentz has big game experience at this point of the year. So Frank Reich, number three in my coaching performances this year. Number two, John Harbaugh in Baltimore. And just the slew of injuries have not subsided since training camp. Marlon Humphrey is now down. Chuck Clark missed the game on Sunday. You know, their their secondary is decimated. Their defense has been decimated. Their backfield has been decimated since training camp. Their receivers cannot ever be healthy at the same time. I mean, Tylen Wallace from Oklahoma State, the rookie, was out there catching passes late in the game. And he did pretty well. But John Harbaugh has kept this team afloat. They're 8-6. Right now, they are the first team out in the AFC playoff picture. I believe the Baltimore Ravens will get into the playoffs because the Bengals just don't look great right now, and they're the leader in the AFC West. And remember, win your division, you're in. But John Harbaugh has has just constructed this whole team around guys that we did not think were going to be playing, around a lot of guys who were not even on rosters on week one. So give credit to the Ravens. Lamar Jackson is going to come back, and they're going to be in the playoffs in my opinion. But number one, Bill Belichick and the New England Patriots, the best job I have seen bringing along a rookie quarterback. They spent money to get the offensive line fixed. They brought in Ramondre Stevenson, the rookie out of Oklahoma, kept Brandon Bolden around, who I forget is still in the league sometimes, kept Damian Harris around, spent a lot of money getting getting tight ends and possession receivers, which are guys that are quarterbacks' best friends, particularly young quarterbacks. So they've had reliable targets for Mac Jones to throw to. They've relied on the run game. And Bill Belichick's defense is something to marvel at. They get after the passer. They take the ball away. They're not good against the run, which got exposed against Indianapolis. I did not know they were 19th in the league in stopping the run. That's what they've got to fix. But I think the Patriots can still win a Super Bowl this year because they can run, they can stop the run, and they take the ball away. And Mac Jones ever so slightly as the year has gone on, has been given more and more responsibility and has answered their coaches positively every time they request more of him. 
So those are my coach of the year candidates. Honorable mention, Mike Tomlin. And then number five, Matt LaFleur. Number four, Nick Sirianni in Philadelphia. Number three, Frank Reich. Number two, John Harbaugh. And number one, the old, reliable Bill Belichick. All right, that'll do it for me with the gray area, Apple on Spotify, and an anchor podcast. My name is Grayson Singleton. God bless. Keep cool. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. And we will see you guys next time. Take it easy.